Most of us have at least one question that we would like to ask God. If we could stand face to face or when we stand before God face to face one day, we probably have one question. We go, this is the one question. I've distilled it down to one that I want God to answer for me. But our questions for God are very different from his questions for us. Do you know the Bible is full of references of God's questions for humans, to humans, addressed specifically to us. But we ask questions because we don't know the answer. We ask questions because we're unaware of what the true answer might be. That's never true with God. So why would a God who knows everything ever ask any of us a question? You ever think about that? The Bible's full of God's questions. In fact, one of the very first times that, uh, well, actually the very first recorded words of Jesus in the New Testament are a question. Remember this story in Luke 2 where Jesus uh, was with his parents in Jerusalem and they'd gone there and they'd left to go back home and they realized a couple of days in that Jesus wasn't with them and they're frantically looking for him and they go back to Jerusalem and they find him in the temple. Remember what he said to them? Why are you looking for me? (laughs) Didn't you know I'd have to be in my father's house? Two questions, actually. And so all through the Bible, there are hundreds of great questions that God actually addresses to us. And over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to look at some of those. I think the reason God asks us questions are because they are the best way to start a meaningful conversation. Several years ago, Dr. Michael Godfrey used to be on our church staff, came here and He has a ministry where he coaches people personally in business, ministry, different ways of life. Some of our staff still go to him for personal coaching. And usually you go to a coach when you're trying to make a decision about something, but you're not sure exactly what the decision needs to be. So coaching uh, is a way to move people from indecision to action. And so he came here and did this seminar on personal coaching. All of several of us in our staff took the course and I was amazed at how simple it was. It was a series of just questions that you ask someone related to whatever the topic is that they're suffering some indecision about, excuse me, about, and you come to some conclusions. And so we actually, in the seminar, we would practice on each other. Uh, Each of us came up with a situation in our lives where we thought about something that we were trying to make a decision about and hadn't made a decision yet. And it was surprising just how going through those simple series of questions would bring us to a place of going, oh, I guess that's, that's the obvious thing I need to do. Okay. And that's kind of the way questions can work in our lives. They can move us to a a meaningful decision that can help us have a meaningful conversation. So I got to work this in today. Since I preached last, I became a grandfather. So I'm a grandpa. And look, a bunch of y'all beat me to it. I know you already know how wonderful it is and everything, but uh, some of you've been praying for my son and daughter-in-law. They, they have been fostering a little girl for the last 15 months and got to adopt her about three weeks ago. We were there in Anchorage. And so now I'm a grandpa and that is my grandpa name. Everybody asked me after the first service, what's your grandpa name? It's grandpa, real creative, you know, because she, they were going to, she's six and a half. So she's not a baby. So she didn't do, you know, Nana or Dada or any of that stuff. It was like, she had some really crazy names for me and Christy. And my son was like, we're just going to call him grandpa and grandma. That's what we're going to do, you know? So, so I love being a grandpa, but, but one of the things that happens since they live so far away is I FaceTime a lot with her. And usually that's going to happen a lot in the service. Those lights are going to flicker on and off probably. So don't worry about it. it happened in the first service. There's a power issue. We're fine. We can have church without light if we need to, right? We can do that. So it's all good. So anyway, I do a lot of FaceTime calling with her. Usually when she's getting picked up from school, my son will put her on FaceTime and she's in the back seat. And so she has the phone down here and I see her chin and outside the window and we, we go back and forth. And, but what I've discovered is when Christy's with me on the FaceTime calls, the conversation just flows. It's just awesome. Christy knows what to ask her. And I ask her these stupid questions like, how is school today? You know, and she goes, fine. Like probably what your kids say when you pick them up from school too. 
So about three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, Suzanne Walker, who works on our children's staff, posted this article that she had seen from this lady who was talking about how to, how to ask your kids better questions. And I thought, man, it's been a long time since I had a six and a half year old. I need some help with this. So I read the article and it was great. She just offered some suggestions on how to talk to your kids and have a meaningful conversation. And one of the things she said was, instead of asking them how their day went at school, why don't you ask them who they sat next to at lunch? So I thought, I'm gonna try that. So two days later, Lizzie called, started talking. I said, hey, Lizzie, who did you sit next to at lunch today? Well, she told me her name, Megan, and we sat next to, and we talked about this, and she had this for lunch, and I had, she just started talking. It was great. It was awesome. It was exactly what I wanted. Next day, uh, she called, and I said, hey, Lizzie, what did you do at recess today? Oh, we played this game, and she told me how the rules worked and who won. Oh, I mean, she just, so what I discovered is what I already knew is that is great questions lead to great conversations. So I think that's why God asks us questions, because God asks us the best questions. And so this morning, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and find that. We're going to read one verse together, chapter 2, verse 5. And as just a start of this series, I think this is one of the most important and profound questions that God has ever asked human beings. And so we're going to look at that. Last week, Pastor Jeffrey preached from Jeremiah and I told him, because he didn't know what I was going to preach about this Sunday, I told him, I said, man, that was a perfect lead-in to what I'm going to talk about next Sunday, today. Because he preached from Jeremiah 31, verse 20, in those verses about how the people of God can forget God sometimes, and yet God comes to them in love and compassion and says, my heart yearns for you. Such a beautiful picture of what it means to really follow God. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for God and for his word. And we're going to be reading, I'm going to be reading out the New American Standard today. Because I like the way it puts this verse, Jeremiah 2, verse 5, and it says this, Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? Thank you. You can be seated this morning. So a little context. Jeffrey talked about this last week, but Jeremiah is a prophet. So he's a man that God has chosen to go to God's people and say, Thus says the Lord. This is what God says. You have to remember, Jewish people back then didn't have their own copy of the Old Testament. They went to the temple or later to the synagogue where they heard the word of God read to them 52 times a year, but they didn't have a copy of the entire word of God. So oftentimes God sent a prophet to them, someone who didn't necessarily sign up for that job, didn't volunteer for that job, but he would tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, I want you to go to my people because my people have strayed away from me and they've gone after things they should. And I want you to go to them and I want you to say, thus says the Lord, so they'll know what I think about what's going on, which is the most important perspective there is, God's perspective. And so here's Jeremiah coming to his own people, but he's known as the weeping prophet because Jeremiah was so heartbroken over his, the people of God's apostasy, of, of their drifting away from God and moving away from God. And so it's a beautiful book. I encourage you, if you've never looked at the book of Jeremiah, and there'll be things in there when you read it that you may not understand but it's always great to hear the heart of God. That's what I love about the prophets is they really express very uh, explicitly the heart of God. And so what happens is he says, he asked him this really important question. What, in, what in, injustice or what fault did your fathers find in me that they walked away from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? The Christian Standard Bible says that they walked after worthless idols and became worthless. Now, it doesn't mean they literally lost their value. So that's not, I don't like that translation as well because we're still valuable to God. We're not worthless to God. It's just that our lives can be about worthless things sometimes. 
when we walk away from God. And when we do that, when we walk away from God, the Bible says the end result's the same for all of us. We become empty. So let me just start this morning by asking a very simple question. When you came in the doors this morning, where you're sitting right now, in your soul, are you empty? You personally. A lot of times people come to church completely empty. They still go through the motions. They still think, well, if I show up, maybe something will happen that'll fill me up. But the truth is, a lot of Christians walk around all the time empty, away from God in their hearts. And so anytime we're rebellious, anytime we're apathetic, anytime we're walking away from God, the end result is the same for every one of us. And most of us are not going to stand up and say, hey, I'm empty today. Because we know we're not supposed to be. So the reality is when we walk away from God, we become empty. So that's the first point that I want to make. When we, anytime you walk away from God, you become empty when you walk away from God. Can a Christian walk away from God? I've heard people say, well, if you're really a Christian, you'll never walk away from God. I don't think that's true. I think Christians can get deceived just like unbelievers, can begin to pursue other things in their lives, things that God doesn't necessarily want for them, and they can become empty. They can get so far away from God that they even kind of forget what the Christian walk is really like. It's like, and Jeffrey mentioned this last week, it's like the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, that story of him leaving physically his father. Can I have my inheritance and I'm going to go? And he did. He physically left his father. So he left the communication, the, the affection. He left all the things that his relationship with his father, the fellowship, if you will, that he had with his father. And he went to a distant place. Well, that's a picture of what can happen even in a Christian's life. Someone who knows Jesus, who's put their faith in Jesus, who surrendered to him, but has chosen to walk away from God. So why would somebody ever do that? Why would a Christian walk away from God? Well, I mean, the, the question addresses it. What injustice did you find in me? People walk away from God often because they're disappointed with God. He didn't do something that they wanted him to do, or he did something they didn't want him to do, and they get disappointed. Someone lost a child. Their marriage went away. They lost their job. They got sick of a terrible disease and they had to live and suffer with it for a long time and on and on and on. And you know those stories. We all know people who've had terrible things happen in their lives. And maybe even you said, God, why did you let that happen to them? Why didn't you stop that from happening to them? Why didn't you prevent that from happening to them? We sort of raise our fist at God in our hearts and go, why? Why did you do that? That's not just, that's not fair. That's exactly the question God addresses to his people. What injustice did you find in me that caused you, that motivated you to go away from me, to walk away from me? So for some people, it is disappointment with God. Are you currently away from God because you're disappointed with him? Still in church, still listen to podcasts and the Christian radio station, but not close, not intimate, not full, empty. That's what happens when you become disappointed with God. Or for some people, it's pride. It's they become so full of themselves, they reach a point in their life where they have most of what they never thought they would have and they have a lot of money in their retirement account or their bank account or everything looks great in their portfolio and their job, their outlook, the future looks so bright and they've got all the possessions they want and all the toys they want and they look around and they go, I don't really need God. Look at me, look what I did, look what I have. 
right? They never say that out loud, but in their hearts, sometimes people do that because of pride, they walk away from God because of their stuff. And that is the story of the people of Israel over and over. Jeffrey talked about last week, my people forget me, they forgot me. How could you ever forget God? But it happens in our lives. It happens because we get so full of ourselves that we somehow think we don't need God. This is what Hosea said, another prophet, about the people of Israel. He said, when they had pasture, they became satisfied. And when they were satisfied and their hearts uh, became proud, therefore they forgot me. So when everything's good in our lives, we have everything we think we need and even all the things that we think we want, we tend to get proud. Look what I did. Look what I have. I don't need God. We know that's not true, but that's the way we live our lives practically. And when we do that, we, we become empty. We head towards a place of emptiness in our life. So it could be disappointment, it could be pride, or it could be temptation. We don't talk much about temptation, but the reality is all of us are tempted from time to time, probably daily with something. Jesus himself was tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted yet without sin. So you can be tempted and that's not a sin. But temptation is when there's something out there in your life and you're drawn to it and you know it's not what God wants for you. But you do it or you're tempted to do it, to go toward it, to pursue it anyway. And temptation often leads us away from an intimate relationship with God when we give in to that temptation. And, you know, one of the things I've known about ministry all these years is just trying to help people when they deal with temptation. There was a, a young man in my first youth group, and, and his deal was drugs. He struggled with drugs, and he wasn't a hypocrite. When he was using drugs, you wouldn't find him at church. He wouldn't be there. Never came to church when he was using drugs. So I would know if he didn't show up a couple of Sundays in a row, I better go find him. He's somewhere, and he's strung out or high or something. And his deal was, he'd just be honest about it. He goes, I love to get high. I just want to be high all the time. I want to live my life high. You know, and I was like, well, you know, whatever you're getting from drugs, that's exactly what God can fulfill in your life if you draw close enough to him. He wants to fill you up in a way that causes you not to need the substitute in your life. And so he would repent from time to time. And when he repented, man, he'd be in the Bible and he'd be at church and he'd be encouraging people and just trying to live the Christian life to the best of his ability with God's help. And he would just be at every activity and he was there. He's all in. But then if he disappeared, I'd know and that temptation. He gave into that temptation again and he went after that thing. And he would himself say, I don't want to have to be dependent on drugs to live my life. That's empty. That leads to emptiness. That can't really satisfy me, but I'm so drawn to it. And you probably know people like that. Maybe it's not drugs. Maybe it's something else in their life. Maybe it's something else in your life. And you keep giving into it over and over again to when you, all of a sudden you begin to believe the lie that you can't help it. Know anybody like that? I just can't help it. So hard. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And this is the most important part of this verse to me, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And God is faithful. Is God faithful? Yeah. God's faithful. What does that have to do with my temptation? Well, this, this, what is this? He would not allow you. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. If he's faithful, you can trust him. So he won't allow that. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. So the reality is the truth of God's word is, not your experience maybe, but the truth of God's word is there's a way out. There's always an escape. He'll never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So when you say, I can't help it, that's not true. That's not true. With God's help, you can help it. In an intimate relationship with God, you do have the strength to stand against those things, 
But when you move away from God, no, you're probably going to give in to those things. You're going to fall victim to those things, whether it's drugs or alcohol, lust, pornography, control, ambition, whatever it is. And when you choose anything instead of God, you're, t- you're walking after emptiness and you're headed to an empty life. So have you walked away from God this morning? If you're empty, if you were honest a minute ago and you answer that question in your heart, yes, I'm empty this morning then I promise you, if you're a child of God, at some point you walked away from him. Maybe not physically, maybe not where people saw it, but in your heart, because you were disappointed with him, because you're full of your own pride or because of some temptation in your life or some other reason, you walked away. And when we walk away from God, we become empty. The second thing this morning is this, you become empty when you forget what God is like. Now, verse 6 and 7 say this. They did not say, the people of God did not say, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no person lived. And then God says, I brought you into a faithful land, a fruitful land, sorry, to eat its fruits and its good things. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance an abomination. So, the first thing that happens when you begin to walk away from God is you sort of, for, you begin to forget really what God's like. And you start to really kind of make God in your own image. And you begin to think things like this. Well, if, if I was God, I wouldn't want me back. I wouldn't take me back. <laughs> if somebody did to me what I do to God, I wouldn't take them back. Well, you're not God and you're not like God. But that's what happens when you begin to walk away from God. When you begin to walk away from God, you you forget what he's really like. And you start to remake him in your own image and think things about him that aren't true. Think about the prodigal son. He's away from his dad. He's taken all this inheritance. He's blown it. He has nothing to show for it. And he starts thinking, well, I'm going to go back home. And he thinks the wrong thing about his dad. He doesn't think. You know, I bet when I go back home, my dad will be waiting for me on the front porch. And I bet you he'll run to me. And I bet you they'll throw a party for me when I get back home. Is that what he thought? He said, you know what? I've blown it. I'm going to have to be my dad's servant. There's no way he'll take me back as a son. Was he right? No. When you get away from God, you begin to think the wrong things about God, which causes you to stay away further because you think God's going to somehow condemn you. That's what the whole sermon was about last week. (laughs) was about God has compassion for you. And even when you're away from him, he pursues you to get you to turn around. That's what the Old Testament's full of, stories of God pursuing his people when they over and over and over again walked away from him. So he says there's two questions here that really you ought to ask. Where is the Lord? And I always say when when anytime you sit down to have a quiet time, a time alone with God, that you ought to ask these two questions. First is where's God today? I mean, is he off somewhere doing something more important or is he right here with me? Because the Bible promises that he's everywhere and that he'll be right here with me. In fact, the psalm, psalmist said this in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there as well. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door and your father who sees you in secret will, will reward you openly. So your father's with you. When you decide to meet with him, he meets with you. Where's God? He's right here with you. He's not off somewhere doing something more important. But when you get away from God, you think, no, you start to have all these incorrect thoughts about God. So you ought to ask where he is, and then you ought to ask who is God? Because that's what he says. Who is God? What had God done for the people of Israel? Well, he describes it right here. He says, you brought us up, which means God had a plan for them. That you brought us out of the land of Egypt, which means you wanted to deliver us out of slavery. You wanted a better life for us. You led us through, which means you went with us every step of the way. 
Through the desert, the pits, the drought, the darkness, even through difficult times, God went with them. That's who God is. He didn't abandon them. He walked with them through all those things. And then you brought us into a fruitful land. So you blessed us. So all those things, God having a plan for them, God delivering them, God walking with them every step of the way, and God blessing them, God being with them in difficult times, all those things are true for you and me. When you're a Christian, God's our father. He does all those things for us. All those things are true. So we ought to ask ourselves, who is God? Who do I know God to be? Not what do I feel like God is. It doesn't matter what you feel like. What does the word of God reveal to us about who God is? You ought to ask yourself that question when you meet with God. So these things are true, but the prevailing ideas you'll have when you begin to get away from God are these. You'll begin to think of God like this. You'll say, well, God's too, uh, too uninvolved in my life. He's not concerned about the details of my life. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? No, the Bible says all the hairs on your head are numbered. He knows every detail of your life. But when you get away from God, you start to go, God doesn't care about me. He's not interested in me. So I'm not interested in him, right? It's a lie. It's a lie. God's too big and too busy to bother with me. He's got better things to do. He's got more important things to do. He's probably trying to help the White House figure out how to govern our country right now, right? He's probably trying to help people figure out how to rule the world right now. And he doesn't care about me. I'm too small. I'm too insignificant. Is that true? No. No, it's not true, but that's what you begin to think. There are too many people for God to know and love everyone individually. You ever think that? How could God know everyone? Billions of people in the world, billions of people that have lived in the world since the start of creation. How could God know every one of them? Because God's not you. Because <laughs> he's not a human. Sure, he became a human, but he's not just a human. He's God. He's sovereign. He knows every person, every being. He knows every detail. He knows every bird that's ever lived, the Bible says. And maybe you tend to think this, my sin's too great. I can't go back. If you think that, that's a lie because your sin's not too great. And your father is pursuing you. If you know the Lord, he's pursuing you to bring you back because he doesn't want you to become empty and live in emptiness. That's what Israel thought. In Isaiah 40, it says this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Why do you say that? It's not true. Do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Why do you say God doesn't know what's going on in my life? He's too uninvolved in my life. It's not true. But when you get away from God, you start to believe the wrong things. You forget what God is really like. First John four nineteen says, we love him because he first loved us. So our love is based on our knowledge and understanding of his love for us. When you understand how valuable you are to God, then you're ready to love other people and you're ready to love him. But that's where we fall short sometimes is we doubt his love for us. And when we're away from him, we question his love for us. We say, there's no way he could love me because I wouldn't love me in this situation, but you're not God. <laughs> God's better than any of us. And so the question is, does that describe you this morning? Have you found some injustice in God that's caused you to walk away from him and become empty? Have you sought to fill your life with other things? Well, the third point is this this morning. You become empty when you expect anything but God to satisfy you. You know what an idol is? It's a God substitute. It's something in your life that you substitute for God. The place of God. You know, the reality is the people of Israel... They struggle with idolatry, physical, literal idolatry. The places they went when they went into the land of Canaan, those places were inhabited with people. And they already had their own religion. They had their own worship. They worshiped all kinds of false little G gods who weren't gods at all. 
but they worshiped him. And the people of Israel were tempted to go, well, you know, these people though, they say that if we don't worship their gods, our crops won't grow, our animals won't be prosperous and we won't have money. We won't be, have enough stuff to take care of our families. And so what they began to do is say, we don't mind worshiping Yahweh, that's great, but we want God plus Baal. So if this morning, if you came in here and someone had set a statue up down here that was just a statue of something, a totem or something, whatever, and said this morning, guys, yeah, we're gonna worship Yahweh, but we're also gonna worship this thing. Would you be okay with that? Hopefully you'd all get up and leave in protest. I hope you would. I hope you wouldn't just stay, okay? We don't plan to do that, by the way. But if we did, you would be like outraged that someone tried to set up an idol in church and offer worship to it. But we don't get outraged when we see Christians doing that in their personal lives. People who have a God substitute in their life. They give their attention, their affection, everything to whatever that is instead of giving it to God. That's what happened with the people of Israel. They thought they had to have God plus Baal. They were wrong. They only needed God. And God said, when your crops grew, I was the one who blessed your crops. When the rains came, I was the one who gave you the rain. When the sun came out and shined on your crops, I was the one who caused the clouds to move away and the sun to shine on your crops. It was me. It wasn't Baal. Baal's not even real. There are no other gods but me. That's what he says all through the Old Testament. I'm the only one. Everything else is fake. <laughs> so when you give your allegiance, you're giving your allegiance to an empty, worthless idol. And when you do that, you become worthless. So what do people walk after? What do people pursue now? Because they don't, they don't worship. We don't worship totems and statues and stuff like that. Not in our country anyway. Not in our culture. People worship possessions sometimes. Their possessions become their God substitute. They want more. They got a bigger thing. They got a bigger house. They got to get a ranch. They got to get a lake house. They got to get a bigger car, more, more lift on their truck. I don't know. I'm not against any of that stuff, y'all. I'm just saying possessions, though, can become, for some people, for some Christians, a substitute for God in their life. They can begin to look at their possessions thinking, my possessions are going to fill me up. Have you ever had a whole lot of stuff and went, it didn't really satisfy me at all? Because we become empty when we expect anything but God to really satisfy us because we were made to have a relationship with God. Some people, for some people, it's not their possessions, it's their accomplishments. And there's nothing wrong with having goals in your life and pursuing them. I'm not talking about that. But if you're going after some achievement in your life thinking that will do it for you, that's going to fill me up. If I get that title, achievement, meet that goal, figure that problem out, whatever it is, then I'm going to be full. If you expect it to be a substitute for God in your life, you're going to be empty. That's what the Bible says. It's going to end up the same. And it can even be in ministry that people do that. What about hobbies? I've told you all before, I love to work on old vehicles and stuff. And when I was a kid, when, before I got saved, it's just so stupid to even say, my truck when I was 15, 16 years old, my truck was my God. It's so stupid. It was a 69 Chevy. It was a piece of junk, to be honest with you. But I thought about it all the time, and I took all my money and poured into it, and I wanted to have the best-looking truck at school, and it was my identity in some weird, warped way. I thought that's who I was. But that's what we do when we expect anything as stupid as a truck <laughs> to fill my life up. You say, well, don't you have a truck now? I do. The difference is I don't expect my truck to satisfy me. It's just a fun little thing in my life. But I could sell it tomorrow and be gone, no big deal. It's not God to me. 
You can have all kinds of hobbies that are great hobbies. Some of you fish, you're gonna go out there today and, and hear the fishing guys, and I hope you do, but you just love to fish because you love to be in creation. It's not your God unless it is, <laughs> unless you think about it all the time and you sort of give all your attention and all your love and all your affection to that, whatever it is. It can be experiences. Some people live for experiences. My bucket list, I wanna go check all these things off. And I think if I do those things, I'll be full. And I do one and it doesn't do anything for me, so I go pursue another one and it doesn't do anything for me, so I keep. And God said, look, you're not gonna find it in experiences because those things weren't intended to fill you up. I am intended to fill you up. Your relationship with me close is intended to fill you up and not relationships with other people. Although relationships with other people are wonderful. I said, I just got to be a grandpa. I love this little girl. It's gonna be great to be her grandpa. But if I replace that for God in my life, it'd be empty. It's not gonna satisfy. So let me make a statement as I close today. And I think it's a really powerful statement. The most dangerous kind of church is an empty church. Not a church that doesn't have people in it, but a church that's full of empty people. Here's what's true. If the church is full of empty people, it's a church that is comfortable with sin. It's a church that is estranged from the Holy Spirit. It's a church that could not care less about people who were dying and going to hell every day. Don't care. It's a church that's more interested in emotional experiences instead of transformational ones. And I love this quote by A.W. Tozer that most people was written, he wrote this in the 1940s, but too many people today wanna enjoy the thrill of feeling right with God, but they're not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right with God. That's powerful. And an empty church is exactly the kind of church that Satan needs to succeed. He doesn't have to defeat you if he can distract you. So this morning, are you empty? If you are, there's only one cause, it's because you've walked away from God. A little, a lot, for a long time, for a short time, I don't know. But I know this, when you're in an intimate relationship with God, your life is full, fuller than you can even imagine. And that's not an emotional high that comes and goes, it's the reality of everyday life when you walk with him. But again, most Christians are more into feeling the thrill of feeling right with God instead of the enduring getting up an hour early to getting God's word to be close to him. So are you willing to endure the inconvenience in your life of actually being right with God? Because when you are right with God, you'll be full and God will give you a full life and your life won't be empty. He doesn't want you to be empty. So the question from God is, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they walked far from me after emptiness and became empty? Are you empty today? And I want to encourage you to do a simple thing, and that's turn around and come back to God. Do what the prodigal son did. He went home. Because though he didn't believe it, his dad loved him more than he knew. And his experience when he got back home was better than he thought it was going to be. And that's exactly what will happen when you repent in your heart. You come back to God and say, God, I've blown it. I've tried to fill my life with other things. I've tried to find satisfaction in other things except you. And I know I can't have it. It's not, that's not the way it's going to work. So I'm going to come back to you with my whole heart. And you know what he'll do? Just exactly what the father did in, in Luke 15. He'll run to you. He'll throw his arms around you. <laughs> he'll welcome you back as his child because he loves you. His heart pursues you and yearns for you when you're away from him. And so this morning, I'm just going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. 
I got one minute, so give me one minute. Please don't leave during this time. You'll have plenty of time to get to your classes you're going to teach in a second, but this is really important. This morning, I want to give you a chance to do that very thing in your heart and just come back. It's called repentance. It's just called turning around and doing a 180 and coming back to him. So just take a minute to do that in your heart today. Believe his word. He's good. He's compassionate. He loves you like that. And then for those of you who are here and you've never asked Christ to come into your life, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You're like I was. You got other things in your life who were, that are your substitute gods, but you know it's not enough. And you know you need Jesus today, and Jesus is here for you. He said, I will never, uh, for the person who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He will, he'll accept you. He'll bring you into his family today when you come to him by faith, believing that he is the Savior of the world. Put your faith in him. The Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning you could do that. Just put your faith in him. He'll meet you right where you are and he'll save you. And so if that's you this morning, whether you're watching online or you're here in the room and you want Christ to come into your life, you could simply just ask him to come into your life. Just call him. Just do, say this, dear God in heaven, I want Jesus to come into my life today. I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. I want, I want to be in a relationship with you that's, that's full, <laughs> like Paul talked about this morning. I want to have that, God. I want to be saved. I want that more than anything. I don't want sin. I want you. So, Father, thank you for sending Jesus for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.